Father, we thank you this day that you have ordained that your word is a light unto our path. It's a lamp unto our feet. By its light, we have light. We can see where we are going when our path is illuminated by the revelation of our great God. We thank you, Lord, that you have recorded this word for us and presented it to us, Lord, after all these ages, pure and undefiled and able to spark inside of us, Lord, an understanding of who you are, who we are, how we might be reconciled to you. We thank you, Lord, that by the preaching of the word, the washing of the water of the word, we can have the mind of Christ. That by the proclamation of its authority, we can repent of that which we have clung to, which is no hope at all, but only deceives us and blinds us to the truth and the everlasting hope that is, is contained in your way alone. We thank you that by the preaching of your word, that you draw the loss unto salvation. After all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We thank you also that your word is like a hammer that can be set against the foundations of the idols of a land, of a culture, of a people, and it can absolutely pulverize them and destroy them. And we pray that you would use your church and the proclamation of your word through the pulpits in this land and around this globe to declare war on the kingdom of the enemy, to uh, demonstrate through the superior authority of your proclaimed truth that nothing will stand in the presence of Almighty God, but every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that you are Lord or else, that there is a day of reckoning, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, that there are consequences and ultimate judgment at the end of this life as we stand before you. But that, Lord, in light of this, there is also a way through Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh and dwelling among us, to be reconciled to a holy God when His death pays for our sin, when He suffers in our place, when His righteousness is accounted to us as our own, when justification is granted to us by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. We pray that these thoughts, Lord, would be the foundation upon which this message is proclaimed this day, the truth of Your Holy Word. And I pray that you would bring perspective to our hearts and minds, and that as your message goes forth, that the lost would bow before Jesus Christ, repent and believe. In all of this, we pray that your kingdom would advance, that you would be glorified, your church would be edified and equipped to serve you all the more. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. Today we turn in the scriptures to Nehemiah. Chapters 8 and 9. And in a moment, I'll have you stand for the reading of the Word. We'll read a portion from both chapters, 8, 18 through chapter 9, verse 3. Nehemiah 8, 18 through chapter 9, verse 3. What a great privilege and honor it is to be able to gather together as the saints of God, even via technology this morning, as we're prohibited from gathering as we normally do in some sense. More on that in a moment. Today, the title of our message is Sackcloth or Slavery. Basically, the context of the title is this. You have two options. These are your options, either sackcloth or slavery. I think we'll discover more of what this means in the context of not only our day, but the Scriptures, which give us some perspective for the time we find ourselves in. The aim of this morning's message is to apply the context of Scripture, such as we find it in our primary text, Nehemiah 8 and 9, but also other texts, Genesis 47, Jonah chapter 3, to our day. So the aim, again, the goal of today's sermon is to apply the context of these Scriptures to the crisis of our day. Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word, out of reverence for the Holy Word of God? And as we stand today... Please note that this is exactly what the people of God did in these passages we read from. They stood, indeed, out of reverence for the Lord as His Word was proclaimed in their hearing. And so we do the same this morning as we hear God's Holy Word proclaimed to us from Nehemiah 8, 18 through 9, chapter 9, verse 3. Here is the Word of God. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. 9 1. 
Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreign, all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today's message falls under the category of one, what is sometimes called an occasional sermon. That is a sermon uh, particular to an occasion. A significant moment has arrived in the history of our experience, as I judge it anyway, deserves a message tailored to the circumstances we find ourselves in, in order to gain foundation and perspective for understanding with confidence with clarity, how to interpret these days in our world. An occasional sermon is a message intended to address a, particular, a particularly significant historical moment. We have one of these, as I judge it, upon us at the time of the delivery of today's sermon, March 29, 2020. Today, our world and our economy are virtually paralyzed by the threat of a global pandemic. A virus known as the coronavirus, which can cause acute respiratory symptoms, can also spread exponentially, as we're told, across a populated area, and the fear is it would potentially overwhelm existing healthcare systems and create an even worse crisis. As a result, we live in Minnesota here, but our circumstance is not unique in these United States and all over the world. As a result of these circumstances, Many regions like ours have issued restrictions on the movement and assembly of persons until the worst of the pandemic has subsided. Hence, even today in this gathering, our numbers are limited by this occasion. So naturally, in times like these, which is relatively, certainly in my lifetime, unprecedented, in times like these, we uh, questions naturally present themselves. Our world today raises this question. How ought we respond to a crisis such as this? How ought we respond, especially as His church? As we are undergirded, as we are moved and motivated, I pray, I trust, by the Word of God, how ought we respond to a crisis such as this? Today's sermon is a biblical study in crisis response seeking to answer this question and apply the timeless instruction found in God's Word to our world today. Let me first note, the context of crisis moments throughout Scripture instruct the attentive reader as to their purpose and pattern in sovereign history. God in His sovereignty ordains afflictions and difficult times, trials, indeed crises, sometimes famine, pestilence, sword, war, great times of want, times of great drought perhaps. These are all, there are examples of these throughout Scripture. God ordains them in His sovereignty according to some purposes and patterns that are discernible in the context of Scripture. But one thing is interesting as we look closer at moments like these in the Bible. We can perhaps deduce the following, the judgments of God calibrated to our response to the crisis event in history are often more acute and protracted than those associated with the trial or the crisis itself. In other words, the judgments of God are often more intense and they extend a longer period of time based upon how people respond to the initial crisis. The judgments of God are not always merely wrapped up in that initial fearful trial or circumstance itself. The initial event is often a disciplinary test as such, allowing a window of repentance. <clears throat> and if that repentance is not forthcoming, if there isn't a penitent heart exhibited among a people, then the knee-jerk or involuntary response of a people will, will merely further unmask their sin 
Their response in this case, they do not repent, but they respond according to the flesh, according to their sinful impulses, according to the old man and just the way that we're wired in a post-fall world. If we respond in this frame of mind, this test will prove nothing more uh, than to show, or it will prove to show that we have even deeper sin that we, than we perhaps revealed on the surface. And this involuntary response of a people or knee-jerk reaction will further unmask the wickedness of their hearts. Their response in this case will prove nothing more than a frantic cry to their false gods who failed them in the first place. And this kind of reaction manifests a spiritually suicidal impulse incurring a yet more steep or precipitous decline. So that is the warning in times like these. We have a warning. God in His sovereignty, in His providence, has issued to us a people who certainly need to repent and turn from certain sins. But if our initial response, if our reaction, our impulse fails to take this into account, what it will do is further demonstrate or unmask or reveal our sin and what we will be inclined to do as a people in light of the great concerns that are overwhelming us is to cry out to our false gods all the louder, to resort to our comfortable places of help and hope with all the more fervor and zeal and in so doing prove all the more foolish. So in times like these, ever more so, it is necessary for us to turn to the Word of God for perspective. And so we do so today under this heading. Traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate the following. Three major points this morning. Traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate, number one, crisis response unto judgment. There is a response to crisis or traumatic events that leads to judgment. That further results in further judgment of the Lord on a people. Secondly, traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate crisis response unto revival. Conversely, on the other side of the coin, there is a response to difficult times that actually leads to revival. To a renewal of a people and a focusing of their heart and affections on the Lord, the one who sent them the trouble in the first place and the one who can deliver them through it. And then finally, traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate gospel occasions. Traumatic events are a great occasion for the gospel to be proclaimed. And so these are our three points today. Number one, traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate crisis response unto judgment. In Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a record of the different afflictions, many manifold afflictions that the people of God went through in the course of their history leading up to this moment. Where are we in redemptive history? Where are we in the covenant record of God's people? Well, the people of God have entered into the promised land. They've occupied it with a series of judges that has given way to a series of kings. And this record is something of a roller coaster of returning to the Lord and falling away. And overall, the decline is steep. And finally, through God's prophets, he warns that unless the people turn from their sins, he will bring a crisis, a traumatic event. He will bring exile indeed. They will be occupied and overrun by foreign armies. The people of God did not repent by and large. And so Assyria invaded from the more northern region and Babylonia from the south. And the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into captivity. And the land that was promised to Abraham languished under occupation of foreign powers. And the people of God, the remnant that yet remained, cried out and longed in these 70-some years of captivity that they might be able to live to see the day where the Lord would return them to the land of their forebears. And that day finally came. There were leaders like Nehemiah, whose book we read today, and Ezra, who joined him, who led a small contingency back to the rubble of Jerusalem, to rebuild not just the walls, not just the dwelling places, not just the temple, but indeed the nation, to set themselves aright and in right relationship with the Lord once again, to return their focus to the God who had ordained them as a people in the first place, who had breathed life into them at their first breath, who had ordained through His promises to their 
forefathers, even Abraham of old, that they might be a light to other nations. And so they seek to rebuild. And they recognize something as they do so. They recognize their shortcomings in their own history. Notice Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26. In recounting the days of old, we read the following, Nevertheless, they were disobedient, speaking of the people of God, and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. This verse indicates that there had been some light, there had been knowledge, there had been a revelation of the Lord and His requirements on the people. And they had been greatly blessed. Their land was overflowing with the milk and honey of promise. And yet, they grew lethargic and apostate, rebellious in their time of blessing. And they turned away from the Lord. They worshipped the idols they coveted of their neighbors. And He warned them through their prophets to reject these things, repent, to turn back to Him and stop committing these great blasphemies. Verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to To your mercies. Verse 32 Now, therefore, O God, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not the hardship seem little to you as has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Most of chapter 9 continues on like this. It's a record of the legacy of apostasy that has preceded this people. It's an honest accounting of a falling away time and again. Though the Lord was so patient indeed in His steadfast love and has said in tender mercies, nevertheless, the people would bloom for a time with apparent covenant faithless and then as life grew easy, they would fall away. God would bring judgment. They'd be overrun by their enemies. He would raise up a judge, a deliverer, a prophet to issue them the truth. They would turn away for a time and then they would fall. And thus continued the cycle of up and down and rise and fall, repent and regress. The confessional worship for a quarter of the day at this time in Nehemiah's hour is an honest accounting of the sordid history of Israel's fidelity to the Lord in contrast to His steadfast love and mercies. In this section, the people identify and confess a pattern of foul weather spirituality. When they are in times of crisis, when traumatic events come, there's a brief spark. They turn for a little while, but it doesn't stick or it hasn't up to this point. It was a show of remorse, a momentary return to apparent faith and times of suffering. But over the centuries, it had almost always proved short-lived. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that there is a godly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance, salvation, and a salvation without regret. But there's another kind of grief as well. Paul identifies it as worldly grief. And this worldly grief leads to death. And up till now, in the history of the people of God, they had experienced from time to time this worldly grief but it had always led to more death, being overrun by their enemies. In our time, in our day today in American history, we have had awakenings, periods of renewal and revival, and we have slipped back into apostasy again. There are great rich moments in our nation's history where the word of God is proclaimed boldly and unemphatically, not just from pulpits, but also at times it's proclaimed in the echelons of civil government. And areas of society where today it's everything short of illegal to do so. Yet what has happened in the wealth and ease and as the great illusion of security, having the greatest military force in world history and the great illusion of prosperity, having the most thriving economy the world has ever known, we have grown 
lethargic and apostate and wicked in our day, in our land. And thus we find ourselves relating to this time in Nehemiah's day where God in his providence has determined to send something which I pray will be an awakening affliction upon us in the form of coronavirus that we may realize who it is that gives us every single breath in our lungs and who it is who will take that breath away on his day of reckoning in a moment's notice. Our lives are in his hands. Do we live like it? No. Often we don't. We live like our lives are in the hands of the medical industry. We live like our lives are in the hands of our 401k, which has taken a steep dive. Our lives are in the hands of a thriving economy or the jobless, uh, the job you know, employment numbers, and so on and so forth. All these are idols. We've referenced this in weeks past. These things are short-lived promises of hope and security, but all of them are proving to fail us right now. People fear for hospitals being overrun. People fear and invest wildly in the stock market one way or the other, causing 1,000, 2,000 world record declines and then bouncing back and so on and so forth. We have a legacy of apostasy in this land, and thus the Word of God has something to teach us. Traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate that there is a response that leads unto judgment. If we have a short-term turning away and a short-term awakening only to slip back into our wickedness, our rebellion, our secularism, and our denying the foundation of any strong society, then we will prove to be another example of what not to follow. And we will prove God's word when his judgment comes upon us and it doesn't prove to be just an awakening shot across the bow, but our response demonstrates we deserve yet more and his judgments calibrated to our response are even more protracted and acute still. This is the danger. This is the warning in times such as these. Now notice, these traumatic events that are visiting the people They affected them in such a way that it involved kings, princes, priests, prophets, fathers, and your people. In Nehemiah, we see recorded verse 32, Now therefore, our God, the great and the mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. And he lists those categories. He lists them again in verse 34. Verse 33 tells us, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we acted wickedly. Verse 34, Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Here, in the the crisis response to, uh, or crisis response that leads to judgment, uh, is such that kings and princes, civil government, priests and prophets, the church, fathers and the people, families, all elements of society fail to realize that they are representatives and they are responsible for honoring the Lord in their spheres of influence and their jurisdictions, their roles and their responsibilities. In other words, the reason why the apparent return was so short-lived in times past, is because kings and princes failed to heed in the fear of the Lord their duty to honor, to honor God in their role of leadership in the nation of Israel. More than this, priests were negligent in their duty and they failed to honor God. Uh, those who were called to serve in religious capacity, they were healing the wounds of the people lightly. There were false prophets among them. There were people who were interested in pitching messages to itching ears rather than being willing to be persecuted for the truth's sake. And then there were fathers and all the people, families indeed, were disordered and disintegrating because these representative areas of the society had failed to understand their duty before the Lord. And Nehemiah, in this passage, the people recognize as much Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. We must pray in our day that civil government, kings and princes, the the church and spiritual health of our nation, priests and prophets, family of fathers and all people and society 
would acknowledge the Lord in true repentance and a true heart. Otherwise, whatever response we see to the traumatic events that face us today may just lead to more judgment. Thirdly, there's consequences for this kind of negligence among a people. It always leads to slavery. Verse 35, even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness, speaking again of kings, princes, priests, and fathers, they didn't keep your law, they didn't pay attention to your commandments, your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich lands that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. You see, they took the blessing of the Lord for granted. They enjoyed the blessing, the inheritance, the benefit, the capital of prior godly generations. But like the, uh, but like the prodigal son, they took their inheritance that a godly man had stored up for his, the next generation, and they spent it on all kinds of hedonistic, self-centered, and sinful living. And such was the case in Nehemiah's day, in, or in the era preceding this uh, age of repentance. In Israel, the kings and the priests and the princes and the fathers, they had enjoyed the great goodness of the land, the large and rich area that God had set apart for them, but they did not serve the Lord. They did not turn from their wicked works. So what was the consequence? Verse 36, Behold, we are slaves this day, and the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us. This would be Assyria. This would be Babylon. Because of our sins, they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. What's the title of this morning's message? Sackcloth, representing repentance, or slavery. Those are the options. Repentance or perishing. Repent or perish. Sackcloth or slavery. We'll find in a moment the people chose the sackcloth, that is the posture of humility, repentance, and thus escaped their slavery. But for those who had wickedly and hedonistically turned from the Lord and they had continued in their wicked works, there were consequences. They became slaves in their own land. The, the people which God had brought out of Egypt, who were in bondage to Pharaoh, returned to bondage under the kings of Syria and Babylon. Those who had once enjoyed the bounty and the fruit of this land flowing with milk and honey, its good gifts and so forth, they became slaves. And all that rich yield, everything that their hands uh, bloodied to produce by way of crops, that the plow had turned over to cultivate the fields, all of this was confiscated. All the rich yield went to the kings who owned their bodies, who owned their livestock, who owned their land, who owned their labor. Unjust taxes, confiscatory, tyrannical tax, an ever-increasing, suffocating state enslaved the people as a consequence of the wrong response to crisis. Traumatic events came. Instead of turning to the Lord in true repentance, they turned to their own means and idols and themselves, and the consequence was they became slaves, and a once free people in a once prosperous land were now subjects to tyrants surrounding them. Sackcloth or slavery, those are your options. Now, this is not only true in the case of Israel, but I want to give you another example in Genesis 47. You don't need to turn there, but you remember the story. There was a famine. That would be our crisis. 47.13, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph bought, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. In conclusion, after these seven years of famine, this is what happened in the land of Egypt. Verse 20, so Joseph, so God's servant, he was an Israelite leader, if you will, over this pagan land. Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. The same principle. The crisis was the famine. 
The people cried out to the state who could provide them food. And the cost was the loss of private property and individual liberty, an ever-increasing growing state. God used, may I submit, Joseph as an agent of judgment to bring this slavery upon the people of Egypt. And if you read in the text, it's contrasted to the land of Goshen, where the people of God were. They became the jealous envy of the rest of the Egyptians because they had security and prosperity and liberty thriving in the land of Goshen. And eventually the Egyptians rose up against them and conscripted them into slavery because they were so jealous. But something happened again. The entire nation of Egypt was despoiled again. And when the Israelites left, they took gold. And after, of course, the plagues came through and destroyed Egypt once again, all of the wealth of the Egyptians virtually was given to the Israelites and they left Egypt. What is the lesson? The lesson is sackcloth or slavery. Are you going to repent of your worship of the Nile, of your Pharaoh, of Ra, of the sun god, this or that, the other, this whole pantheon? Or are you going to become slaves? And the people of Egypt chose the latter. And later, tragically, the people of Israel chose the latter as well. Because they did not worship the Lord, because they did not turn to Him in their time of crisis, and their repentance was not sustained. Behold, they became slaves. We are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its good gifts and its fruit. Behold, we are slaves. The rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. Is this true in our day? I submit to you that this is principally true, and it is illustrated dramatically in our daily news cycle. What is one of the first things the kings and princes of our land did when the fear of this coronavirus set in upon us? Well, of course, their people were scrambling to, you know, come up with provisions for health resources and so forth, all good as far as it goes. But then the legislature, legislature started to scramble in equal fervor to inject the economy with trillions and trillions of dollars. The Federal Reserve promptly injected trillions of dollars into our economy to try to stave off a decline in the financial fortunes of America. And this week, Congress passed a $2 trillion, quote, stimulus package or, quote, corona relief package to try to flush money into the system, companies that are failing, pockets of average Americans, some diverted to healthcare, some bailouts, corrupt bailouts for companies, I'm sure we'll find in the course of things. Suffice it to say, this is the largest bailout, I, may I submit, in human history. I, I beg you, prove me wrong. Certainly in American history, has there ever been a time in world history where $2 trillion has come by way of frantic, panic, stimulus to try to stave off this steep economic decline. Now, let me ask you, where is this money coming from? Now, if you follow that trail, if you do your due diligence, what you'll find is the government can only come up with money against the future productivity of you, your children, and your children's children, and so on. That is to say, you might receive a short-term check now, but it's at the cost of long-term slavery. The wages, the future wages of future generations are already spoken for. In a moment like this, we can prove Nehemiah 9 and Genesis 47 to be a principle even in our day. Why? Because for a short-term gain, we're embracing long-term slavery, and at least by degree, we're receiving the consequences of not repenting. So again, I ask, what will it be? Sackcloth or slavery? If you cry out for help and hope from the government, you will get slavery. Government as the ultimate source of help and hope, as the most tangible resource for us to, you know, basically secure our fortunes materially, economically, and so forth, is nothing but an idol. And if you turn to the government in times like this, rather than turning to God, if you place the, you know, uh, laws like were passed this week on a higher pedestal than worship of the Almighty, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the God who the earth and the world and all that dwells therein, its fullness is absolutely His, then it's nothing but a modern-day version of what the Israelites and the Egyptians did. 
worshiping their idols, crying out for salvation, not from Yahweh, but by their own means. And thus they became slaves that day in the land. And its good gifts and its rich yield went to the state and tyrants. And they became prisoners in their own property. And they lost their liberty and their private property and the land and so forth became confiscated through unjust taxation. Traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate crisis response unto judgment. So that's a sober assessment of our scenario and the warning that it holds out for us. But what I want to switch to now is the positive response. Number two, traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate crisis response unto revival. There is a way to respond to traumatic events that leads to revival, that leads to uh, repentance from sin, a turning to the Lord, a stronger foundation, deeper roots, more joy, and even, yes, in due course, even more wealth and abundance should God bless and prove faithful. And it is invariably the case in Scripture that He does so when His people turn to Him. This is what is happening in Nehemiah 9. Notice in Nehemiah 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What is a crisis response? What is a response to traumatic events that leads to revival? Well, first of all, when the word of God is proclaimed. The, uh, chapter, Nehemiah chapter 8, in fact, is the basis of much of the structure of our church gathering here today. We gather to listen to the word of God proclaimed. And we pray that the ears of all the people would be attentive when we strive to listen to the voice of our Lord through the book of the law, through his word. Notice, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. There's a pulpit before you today. It's a similar situation that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood this whole list of servants on his left hand. And a co-leader, verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. We stood this morning for the reading of God's holy word. Why? Because Nehemiah 8 models for us a correct response in a time of crisis. In fact, in any time, that is. We should stand for the word. That is to say, we should revere the word. We should seek to be attentive to the book of the law. We should pay attention to the truth therein revealed. A crisis response that will yield fruit and hope and security and help in time of trauma is when the word of God is proclaimed. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Amen! Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Again, what Ezra and Nehemiah are doing is they are preaching. They are proclaiming the Word of God. The Word of God takes a featured location. This elevated position demonstrates that the authoritative message is about to be broadcast. The people train their ears and are attentive to the reading of God's Word. They recognize its authority. And as it's being proclaimed, the men of God give the sense of it so that the people can understand the, in their hearing what is being revealed to them in God's holy word. A crisis response that leads unto revival will begin with the word of God being proclaimed and being heard with reverence and fear. Secondly, a crisis response includes not just the word proclaimed, but the word retained and obeyed. Chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priests and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. You see the Lord softening their hearts to truth. 
And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to everyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And then verse 13, they begin to obey the word as it's delivered to them on the second day. The heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Fathers are leading their families and family clans to study the written word. They're seeking the help of Ezra the scribe in order to understand, commit to heart and memory and mind that which God has revealed. And as they do so, they begin to practice the feasts, walk in the way that God had ordained for them. Verse 17, all the assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. For from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. You see this repentance happening? Whereas the prior generations had failed to obey God's word, now they're putting aside their unfaithfulness, being attentive to the word of God, studying it for themselves, and then walking in its precepts. Verse 18, And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Crisis response unto revival. The Word of God proclaimed. The Word of God retained and obeyed. And number three, penitent or repentant worship. Thus continues Nehemiah 9.1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. A crisis response that leads unto revival will include the word of God proclaimed, the word of God retained and obeyed, and penitent or repentant worship. There are three here, and a fourth is added in Jonah chapter 3, outward expressions of inward repentance. Fasting, sackcloth, earth on the head, or ashes. Fasting, sackcloth, earth, and ashes. Whatever could this mean? What is sackcloth anyway? Well, sackcloth is um, it's fabric that's not ordinarily used for apparel. It's a packaging material. I was talking to the kids last night. Perhaps in our context, you could think like cardboard. Imagine just wearing cardboard. Um, that would be humiliating. And that's exactly the point. When one takes on sackcloth, they're assuming in this act of faith, in this act of obedience, the posture of humility. Whereas clothes normally set, distinguish someone and set them apart and communicate something about their status and their position relative to their peers, their job, their vocation, their hierarchical authority, you know, let's say a judge, a king, a magistrate, people, you know, business suits, even today, all through the ages, clothing represents status. In taking on sackcloth, you put aside your status. You say, I am low of no account. I'm a beggar. I'm a pauper. There is nothing that that I retain in myself that is worthy of your attention, Lord. I humble myself. I humiliate myself. I take the posture of vulnerability and repentance and say that you are God. You are holy. You are righteous. You are true. You are king. You are authoritative. And me... I am nothing but a worm were it not for your blessing upon my life. Same with fasting. Fasting sets aside that which sustains you, at least a portion, for a time. You see, in a time where food could be scarce, fasting is a real demonstration of faith. And in our day, in this coronavirus coronavirus situation, it's almost as if God has issued a mandatory fast. 
Okay, you are drunk and self-indulged on sports and entertainment and recreation. You like to go wherever you go at the drop of a hat, do whatever you do. You like to charge up your credit card to achieve whatever fun thing you want to do. And now all of this has come to a screeching halt. It's as if God has imposed a mandatory fast on us right now. People are scrambling for food and they're stocking their shelves. Why? Because that's the initial response and fear and concern. We hoard and we self-protect and we self-justify. We make excuses. We worship our gods. We beg for money from the government and so forth. But there is a different posture that's assumed in the day of Nehemiah. Instead of all of this, the people dressed in sackcloth. Instead of um, hoarding for themselves food, they began to fast. And instead of uh, demonstrating that they were superior in themselves, they put earth on their heads. And in this, this was a demonstration, a posture of helplessness, weakness, humility, vulnerability, the opposite impulse of the flesh. In times of crisis, which will it be, sackcloth or slavery? Because if we scramble in self-preservation, in excuses, in frantic measures, in desperate self-serving action, we will hoard and hide and run and defend and try to preserve what little pride remains. But the consequence is we will just at the end of the day be more enslaved. However, if we take on the posture of humility that is, referenced, that is demonstrated for us here, then perhaps the Lord will be pleased to heal our land. Perhaps the Lord will be pleased to raise us up again. And to give us once again firm footing under our feet to restore unto us that godly capital that's been squandered by the prodigal secularist these days who has spent our nation into oblivion with wine, women, and song and frivolous, self-serving wickedness. Not only do these people at this time take on this posture of humilities, but they, con- they confess sins not only their own, it says they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. What could the iniquities of their fathers represent? Well, certainly they knew that they were in the place they were because prior generations preceding them had failed to do what they were doing now. And the consequences of their father's sins remained among them. The cultural realities that shaped the landscape of their existence, of their society, came from the sins of their fathers. Their religious uh, ideas, their education, their family, their government, their commerce, all the things that are part parcel of society had been warped and shaped. They had been influenced and corrupted by the sins of the fathers. Go repent of these. Go repent of the sins of the fathers. In repenting of the sins of fathers, it's to identify in part the poisonous roots of the cultural realities of our traditions and our identity as a people and be willing to rebuild society from its foundations as necessary and to go back even though the walls are in absolute ruins and the temple has been destroyed and the dwelling places are so much rubble piled up in the corners of what used to be streets, the people go back and they not only rebuild from the stones up, but they rebuild their hearts and their ideas and their philosophy and their religion and their commerce, their interactions and their families and their whole society, their whole way of life and economy around the word and law of God. This is a crisis response unto revival. The word of God proclaimed The word of God retained and obeyed, penitent worship down to the depths of the soul, assuming the posture of humility, fasting, sackcloth, earth, and ashes. This isn't just true of the nation of Israel, but this is true among the nations as well. Can we think of a time where a crisis response led to revival? Sure. How about in Jonah's day in the land of Nineveh? Jonah 3, 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, fasting, 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Notice from those highest in authority kings all the way down to the homeless pauper, they all fasted put on sackcloth and ashes. Again, assuming this posture of humility, vulnerability, and helplessness and weakness. And they threw themselves upon the mercy of the God of this prophet Jonah. They threw themselves at the mercy of Yahweh that perhaps he could find it in his heart to save them, though they did not deserve it. God was pleased with their penitent worship. And even in this pagan land, Nineveh, he brought help, he answered their prayers, and he rose them up from certain destruction and set them again uh, toward a future and a hope, recognizing their act of repentance. This is a crisis response that leads unto revival. Do we see response like this in our nation as of yet? No, we don't see it. Do we see calls in Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate? Do we see uh, anything passed by way of a call to fasting and prayer, yes, you'll sometimes get a call to prayer, but it's just a call that goes forth to all faith communities. It's discouraging when you actually read the language, assuming that any old God, any old tradition is a worthy place to seek for hope and help in time of spiritual need. No, that's not the case. We must pray that from king to homeless man in this land, that the posture of humility and repentance would be adopted. Why? Because it's either sackcloth or slavery. It's either repent or perish. That's the message in traumatic events such as the one that we have today. And yeah, there's plenty of responses out there, but I submit to you, by and large, the responses that are the first, the most forceful, the most forthcoming, they're responses unto judgment. Let us pray and let us model in our own lives a response unto revival, even repenting of our own sins, even turning from areas of our own hearts that we have indulged the wickedness of our land in our day. Let us close with one final reference. Traumatic events in Scripture demonstrate not just crisis responses unto judgment, not just crisis responses unto revival, but also gospel occasions. Turn to Luke 13. This is a great passage in times of trauma like ours. This is from our Lord Himself. Jesus Christ teaches us even in cases of atrocity, human uh, intention involved, so horrific acts committed willfully by humans to catastrophe, natural disasters, if you will. So from atrocity to catastrophe, traumatic situations and events like this present a gospel opportunity. Luke 13.1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So you see, we have a wicked ruler, Pilate, we have innocent blood, the Galileans. It was spilled in this pagan uh, worship context. A horrific atrocity. The will of man is uh, slaughtering the innocents in this, in this perverse ceremony. Verse 2, this is Jesus speaking. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? In this way, no, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. And he gives another example, verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what is the message of traumatic events according to Jesus Christ in New Testament Revelation? Well, it parallels the old, does it not? Whether atrocity or catastrophe, the intent or God's purpose is, is to turn man from his sin and to the Lord who governs the hearts of men and controls all events in history from a tower collapsing to the twin towers collapsing, from a disease blown in by the breath of God, taking out the people by plague in Egypt to the coronavirus multiplying exponentially across our globe today. From atrocity to catastrophe, the call is repent or perish. The call is sackcloth or slavery. 
The call is turn to the Lord while you still have breath in your lungs. Turn to the Lord while the building over you is still standing. Turn to the Lord before some wicked man overcome by his depravity kills you in cold blood. You see, there will come a day when it will be too late to repent. For those buried under the, under the tower of Siloam, it was too late. Eighteen had been killed in that collapse. For those who had been slaughtered in the night or whenever by Pilate or uh, during this horrible uh, ritual, the Galileans, for them, when the sword had sliced a vital artery, it was too late. So the message is, in times of traumatic upheaval, turn from your sin and turn to the Lord while there is still time. We turn to Jesus Christ in times of atrocity because He is our only help and hope. Why do we turn to Him? Because His death paid for our sins and His resurrection proved He has victory even over the grave. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ and the Tower of Siloam fell on you, or you're slaughtered in the night by Pilate's guards to be used in ritual sacrifice, you would overcome that circumstance only because your life was hid in Christ. And because you had victory over the grave, because he was offered up for your trespasses, according to Romans 4 and 5. He was delivered up for your trespasses, and through his resurrection, and you, uh, you were justified. Because Christ's work on Calvary, we have hope to survive atrocity and catastrophe. For times of traumatic event, it's like a proto-reckoning. It's like a day of the Lord that anticipates the ultimate day of the Lord. There is a day of the Lord coming when it will be too late to cry out anymore. And for all who die without repenting of sins, they know exactly what I mean. But for those of us who survive them, the call is to turn to our Lord. Let's close with application. The coronavirus presents us with opportunity for repentance. The Wall Street Journal this week had an interesting article. It was entitled, A Coronavirus Great Awakening? Question mark. A Coronavirus Great Awakening? I quote in the article, this is, it was an op-ed, and the author says, quote, For societies founded on biblical tradition, cataclysms need not mark the end. They are a call for repentance and revival. As a coronavirus pandemic subject, subjects uh, us um, hospitals uh, to a fearsome test, Americans, our hospitals to a fearsome test, Americans can find solace in the same place that Butterfield did. And he quotes another author, quote, The ancient Hebrews, by virtue of inner resources and unparalleled leadership, turned their tragedy, turned their very helplessness into one of half a dozen creative moments in world history. Now that's written from a secular perspective and you can tell. But it is an interesting question, is it not? A coronavirus awakening? The question remains to be answered. Now if it is answered in the affirmative, if this trauma, traumatic event that is upon us right now does lead to repentance, it won't be because of unparalleled leadership. It won't be because of inner resources. It will be because hearts turn to the true author and finisher of our faith, sustainer of our very lives, author and owner and creator of this entire universe, the Lord of a virus, the Lord of bacteria, the Lord of our lungs, the Lord of today, tomorrow, and eternity. What the author seeks to demonstrate, or one of them here, is that these moments end up being a high watermark. What looked like could be a destructive event in the course of history can sometimes prove a high watermark. But again, I tell you, that will only be true if sackcloth is donned instead of help through legislature. Remember, sackcloth or slavery, those are our options. Repentance or perishing, that is the day, or those are what are presented to us on the day of choosing. So what will it be? Will we repent or will we perish? Will we don the sackcloth, so to speak, of humility before the Lord? Will the church proclaim His unequivocal authority and lordship? Will the church proclaim that we have fallen immeasurably short of His standard of righteousness? Will the church declare to the civil government that we must repent of generational theft, of secular law theory, of abortion, the blood pollution that has corrupted our land to the tune of thousands and thousands per year? 
must not be sustained anymore. If anything illustrates our sinfulness in this regard, is it not that all elective surgeries are canceled right now because we want to keep beds open for coronavirus victims except for one elective surgery, abortion? Does this not illustrate to us that our response to this atrocity merely reveals more of our sin rather than demonstrates a heart so far of repentance? We have not approached this crisis yet with fasting and sackcloth, with earth on our heads and ashes demonstrating our humility before the Lord. Will we repent of sanctioning homosexual marriage as a viable option under the color of law in all 50 states in this land? Will we turn from the law of man and begin to seek the law of God with the heads of fathers' houses? and kings, and princes, and prophets, and those who are supposed to be priests, if you will, that is, preachers, rulers, magistrates, presidents, judges, fathers, families, all people, will we turn from our sin, and will we seek the scribe, as it were, in order to study the words of the law? And will we listen with rapt attention as the book of the law is read? And will we cry out, with the truth of Scripture, amen and amen, and lift up our heads, lift up our hands and bow our heads and worship the Lord with our faces to the ground, assuming this posture of humility. Will the church repent of anemic preaching, of tickling, itching ears, of preaching what we prefer to hear, of adding to their numbers daily while divorcing the truth all the while? of corrupting the text by man's creative ideas and twisting and altering and changing and substituting the values and the voice of culture for the clear, unequivocal message of repentance and faith in Christ alone by the power of His, or according to the authority and the standard of His unchanging word alone. Will the pulpits who have failed to be clear in this regard repent and turn their attention to the word which never withers or fails And recognize that when the breath of God comes, it will destroy all flesh. And the only thing that will stand is that which stands with Christ. Will we we repent in our families of divorce, of redefining the family, of disorder, of pornography, of disorderly homes and pagan education and raising our children, basically adopting, absorbing, and tolerating the wicked worldview of the culture and the nations that surround us? Will the heads of fathers' households wake up? And will they seek with the priests and the Levites to come together around the Word of God? These are areas of repentance. This is where we can don the sackcloth of a penitent heart and seek the Lord and demonstrate that in as far as we search our hearts and recognize there's room for us as a people of God, ostensibly, to turn from our sins and turn to the Lord. Will we do it? Will we do it? Will we demonstrate this? Will we proclaim these words? And if we don't, this traumatic event will pass us by and only bring more judgment still, as our response will prove to be crying out to false gods. If we do, this can be a response that leads unto revival. And we can don sackcloth and God's blessing and favor and His preservation and His mercy upon us and to our children. So this is the day of choosing that we have upon us today. Repent or perish, sackcloth or slavery. Let us pray that we and the people of this land turn to the Word of God. Dear Lord, we find ourselves with a great opportunity before us. This disease that you and your providence have brought upon us shows us how frail we truly are. Suddenly the delusions of what we trusted in yesterday are proven foolish. And we frantically scramble for new sources of help and hope. Father, I pray that we would scramble to none of these except you. You are the only one who can provide for us assurance, salvation, security, and help in our day of trouble. I pray that you would work within us a heart, Lord Jesus, that would put on, so to speak, sackcloth and earth and ashes and take up the call to fast that we might turn from our sins that we might demonstrate the heart of penitence to a world that's lost without you, that we might proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we must turn from our wickedness and embrace the truth 
and do it once and for all. Let this moment, Lord Jesus, purify with, and uh, clarify and add precision to the message of the gospel proclaimed from the pulpits in this land. And let this word go forth and prick hearts unto repentance. Lord, I pray that we would mark this time in history and, fu- and, and look back on it in the future, realizing that because your word was proclaimed and people repented, that there was a great healing that came upon our land, a great revival that broke out. This is what we pray for. This is what we ask for. All we can do, Lord, is tell the truth and seek to live according to its precepts. But I pray that we would be joined by thousands, yes, millions, Lord, in this regard, that we might see your grace and favor upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me say one more thing. What I have personally chosen to do as a way to tangibly apply this message is to fast of something for at least two weeks. So during this time of quarantine, of mandatory fast, if you will, why not choose to fast uh, from something as an act of obedience to our text today? A way of assuming a posture of humility. You could set something of your ordinary routine aside, something that you indulge you know, or enjoy by way of food or an area of food or something else. I don't mean to be too dogmatic or particular about it, simply to offer that opportunity to join me in putting application, feet to our faith, and taking seriously this text. In two weeks, you know, traditionally Easter will be upon us and so forth, and that seems significant as well. And there are others who actually will be joining in this fast I've heard of here and there or committing to fast at least until Easter that the Lord might use this cultural moment to move the church and our world to repentance. So I would encourage you to take that and uh, if you're convicted to join me and let us focus our attention in prayer and in positive steps to uh, be obedient to the Lord in a time such as this. Praise His holy name.